Greetings, UBC. It's good to be with you. Uh, good morning. Good. I just want to make sure you were there. All right. Uh, we are going to be in Psalm 146 this morning. Psalm 146. So please do open your Bibles to Psalm 146 or, or scroll there, uh, whatever it is you need to do to get God's Word in front of you. Uh, I'm going to read the passage uh, and then I'm going to ask the Lord uh, to bless to bless his word. Uh, when you have it, you can just say amen. This is the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes. In a son of man in whom there is no salvation, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we are weak people, all of us, and we need your help now. We need your help to listen to your word, and we need your help to preach your word. And so we pray that you would come and help us by your spirit uh, so that Christ would be exalted and so that our hearts would be changed. We ask you to do this for the glory of Jesus and the good of your people. In his name we pray. Amen. Any, anybody in here enjoy art? Okay. Got a couple. Okay. All right. I, I enjoy art. I like art. I'm not in the art world. Okay. So, like, I like most art, but I've never purchased a piece of art and, and actually been able to say that I confidently know what it is I'm looking at, like what, what I'm buying. Uh, we have one piece in our home from Target. Uh, you know, that's, that's about as far as it goes. So I can't walk into an art gallery and, and, and make comments about Impressionism and, 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 and sound like I know what I'm doing. Uh, there is a documentary called Major Look that centers around art experts uh, and the director of the oldest art gallery in New York City. These are people who are supposed to know what they're buying and, and what they're looking at. And in the documentary, the director is supposedly unknowingly purchasing and selling modern art classics for millions of dollars that are fakes. 
And she protests that she doesn't know that they, that they are fakes. And the reason that she doesn't know that they are fakes and that they were fakes is because in order for the gallery to display these works of art, they have to be appraised. And they pass through the hands and under the eyes of all these experts. And the experts look at them and they appraise them and they say, yes, this is genuine. This is real. This is valuable. This is a Jackson Pollock and it's worth $8 million. But they were fakes. There were hundreds of fakes that people have, had paid for and that people have in their homes and were ascribing value and, and worth to them. And the appraisal and the admiration is faulty. And, and, and the art lover's praise, while it may be genuine, it was, it was ill-informed and, and the paintings were not worth the admiration and the money that was spent on them. Well, in our passage this morning in Psalm 146, we, we find that the psalmist is both the painter and the trustworthy appraiser. He, he constructs a picture of God and is making an assessment of both God and man. And he is calling us to direct our praise and our worship and our trust to the only God who is worthy of all of that. Are you with me? So, so while I'm not looking to have a conversation with you, I'm preaching. I, you can respond if I ask a question. If I, if I say amen in the form of a question, you can respond. Amen. Okay, good. Good. There we go. God is worthy of our praise. The, the trouble with this is that we struggle often. We, we fail to appraise God rightly, even though we might heartily affirm the truths of the psalm. If you ask us, we would say, yes, praise the Lord. But what the trouble is we can esteem others as more valuable and more worthy than God. The trouble is that we may see them as more advantageous. We may see them as more beneficial when it comes to our most immediate interests. While we would agree, praise the Lord, while we would, while we would look at the scriptures and go, yes, they appraise him rightly, certainly it's God's word. Our hearts don't always ascend to that. And so my hope is that as we look at this psalm, my hope is that the Lord would bless the preaching of his word so that our hearts would see our triune God rightly. And so, so that we would be eager to ascribe to him the value and the right praise that the Lord Jesus is due. And, and my, my hope is that wherever we have misplaced our trust, that the Lord would, by his grace and the power of the scriptures and the influence of the spirit, just realign our hearts. So are you with me? So I'm going to do this, if you take notes, in two just very simple points. So here are the points. Point number one, man, a false hope. And point number two, God, our great help. And I'm going to do my best to explain what's happening in the psalm and then try to apply this uh, to, to our lives as, 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 I, as I point us uh, to, the, to the Lord Jesus. So let's just consider here verses one and two. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul, is how the psalm begins. Now, it's not clear who wrote this psalm. It, it could be David, but there's no clear evidence that, that points to that. What is clear is that this psalm is part of a group of psalms uh, specifically written for the praise of God. And so this group of psalms conclude the entirety of the book of psalms, and they all begin and end with praise the Lord, praise the Lord, or hallelujah. So they kind of work as a smaller version of the story of God's collective people, our story. 
When God saved you and brought you to himself, he, he brought you to himself and there were likely shouts of praise and thankfulness for deliverance and forgiveness and repentance. And then our lives end too in glory and, and exist forever, eternally with shouts of praise. And, and this is how the, the last section of the Psalms, each of them begins and ends. And the psalmist starts by preaching to himself. He says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. My soul refers to his whole being, the part of him that will go with him beyond death. And he's calling his whole being to do what his whole being was made to do, which is, there we go, praise the Lord. And he answers himself, I will. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. And there is an inner call and response to his praise, not just for a moment or for a season, but the psalmist says he wants to do this and intends to do this as long as he lives. This is in every situation, in, in the actual things that happen every day, I will praise the Lord. This is the intent and theme of his life. The idea is that there is that I mean to praise. I mean to sing as, as long as I live. I intend to do this. It's the abiding posture of his heart. And I ask myself, as I would ask you, do I reason, do you reason with your soul to pre and preach to yourself to ascribe value and worth and praise to the Lord? So the reality is we reason with ourselves all the time and ascribe value to all sorts of things, right? This show is worth my time and attention. This chocolate-covered Oreo is worth my consumption. Amen. This football team, however poorly they played yesterday, is, is worth my, my emotion. Is, that too, is it too soon for that? I don't, I'm from Philly. We don't do lots of college football. I know emotions are high down here. I'm sorry if I offended you. We, we, we should take this up with our souls here, saints, in, in regards to our, our praise of the Lord. Reason with yourself. Make an assessment here, as the psalmist is calling us to do. And, and if, 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 if that was the filter through which all matters of other praise was, was kind of pushed through, I wonder what, I wonder what would change. In, in, our, in our lives. The psalmist is preaching to his soul so that his soul will do what is for its best good. And while we may praise from our mouth, the, the praise comes from our soul. And so it's the soul that we call to praise God. Charles Spurgeon writes this, it's a poor business if we solely exhort others and do not stir up our own soul. It is an evil thing to say, praise ye. And never to add praise, oh, my soul. So God's praise comes from our souls. This is what your soul is for. Preach to yourself. Preach to your soul so that it praises. In, in verses 3 and 4, the one, the one who might ask, why always God? Like, why always praise God? Why always trust God? Why, why never man? Verses 3 and 4 gives an answer. Man is a false help. He says, put not your trust in princes 
and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Princes. Who, who are the princes? Right, we don't have any princes in Arkansas or Philadelphia or the United States. There's no princes. The idea is anyone who has power, influence, and authority. These are the ones who might, you, you might look to for help. Right? The most natural places you might go for assistance. These are the ones who seem even oftentimes more practical than talking to a God who you can't see. Governments, leaders, the wealthy. The psalmist says, don't place your trust in them. And, and this is not a suggestion, it's a command. Do not put your trust in princes, in the Son of Man, in whom there is no salvation. Does this mean then that we are not supposed to trust our leaders or look to, to them for help? No, we, we just finished praying for them. The scripture tells us to obey our leaders, to pray for them, that, that they're appointed by God, we see in Romans 13. And so aren't we supposed to have some kind of trust in the ones who are given positions of authority? They are indeed given that by God. Well, I think it depends on what your soul is trusting them to do for you. What kind of trust is not to be placed in princes? Now, what's interesting is that when the psalmist says, when his breath departs, uh, he returns to the earth, on that very day his plans perish, many commentators point out that the, the idea is directly connected to these, these powerful people, their plans of, uh, uh, to use their power in help. So their well-meaning plans of assistance and support the plans to relieve others who might be looking to them for help, it, it's that they, they die when they do. These are the people who you might say, help me, and they might go, I want to help you. And, and trusting in someone to fulfill their duty in a particular office is one thing, but the psalmist reminder is that if you are looking for relief for your soul, they cannot ultimately provide that. Their best intentions, even to help, only go as far as they do. They cannot reach your soul, which is why he says, there is no salvation in them. They cannot reach where only God can reach. So even though they might not look like it, their speech may be assuring, their position seems to be so immovable, their plans seem so promising. At the end of the day, at the end of their life, each of them proves to just be, what does he say, a son of man. The idea that there is that this is a son of Adam. They're you and they're me. This is certainly a reference to Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Their plans, the princes, the sons of man, well-intentioned as they may be, they all die when they do. And Isaiah reminds us that the seemingly best among us are not even as great as we might imagine them to be. Isaiah 32, 5, the fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. And we see the truth of verses 3 and 4 even in things like our own government. When, when, I mean, how many people treat candidates for political office with, with the expectation that they can actually do something that they can't do? They, they pin so much hope for their future on elected officials. And, even, and, 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 and as soon as the guard changes, like 
executive orders are signed and, and plans that were in place for some time get thrown out. They live as long as their term does. They have no ultimate decisive power in the world that God rules. This doesn't have to be governments. doesn't have to be the wealthy. Uh, it can be anybody. It can be anybody. It could be, it could be a pastor. It could be a Christian celebrity. It could be a Twitter feed that you look to. William Plummer says, the best of them are limited in resources and often cannot help those to whom they have the strongest attachment. The best of them are fickle and liable to change from friendship to aversion. And so do we, we do not place our trust in man the way that we must always place our trust in God. Paul gets at this. In 1 Corinthians, when he says, what I mean is that each of one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided, he asks. Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The, the idea is, yes, I'm an apostle. I'm here for your good. Submit to my authority. I'm, 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 I'm teaching for your good. I'm equipping for your good. But I did not die for your sins. Don't trust in me that way. That the powerful sons of man may seem almighty and worthy of praise, but they are not worthy of the praise and trust reserved for God. And while we may amen this, it may seem basic to us. I do think this is more ingrained in us than we might realize. Do we realize that this psalm also extends to ourselves? We, we too are the ones in whom there is no salvation. We can be just as much a prince in our own minds, as, as anyone else we might hope in outside of us, and our plans perish when we, when we do. Our, our help is just as finite as someone else's. We, we can look to ourselves even in the ways we ought to look to our Lord. And our misplaced trust, whether it's in ourselves or in someone else, always hinders our praise of God. It always hinders our praise of God. And not only that, when our appraisal of man is misaligned, when we're, when we're giving him, him or her something or ourselves something, praise, adoration, trust, uh, uh, hope in, in ways that are inappropriate and that they do not deserve, it also affects our relationships with, with others. Often when we overvalue someone, or we overvalue ourselves even when we idolize them and they, and they prove to us that there is no salvation in them. What often happens? We may rage at them. We may get angry with them. We may lash out when all they've shown is that they're not Jesus. Tim Keller says, when you idolize, you demonize. When you put someone where they don't belong and they prove to you that they don't belong there. If your hope isn't in Jesus, you run the risk of doing all sorts of terrible things to your relationship with them. Wherever our trust has been misplaced, saints, we must look to the Savior. We must look to the one Son of Man 
who can be trusted completely, the one in whom perfect trust and complete salvation live. Jesus is the one Son of Man in whom our trust should abide. He is our perfect trust. And when we fail to live in line with the commands of Psalm 146, he's also our righteousness. So we must keep our eyes fixed on the finished work of Christ, not just because he is the object of our trust and ought to be always, but he is our trust. So so what do I mean by that? He is the one who keeps the command of Psalm 146, verse 3. He, he keeps it. John 2, we're told on, on his part, he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. And in his hour of greatest need, of testing, of going to the cross, Peter writes, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, even our sins of faulty trust. So as our trust is being sanctified, saints, we must keep our eyes on Christ. We must keep our eyes on his life lived and his death died. And if we take our eyes off of Jesus and put our trust in man, we all we will fall off the narrow path into a pit of despair, or we will start to climb this hill of, of self-righteousness that is built on a misunderstanding of who we are and who others are. And both are harmful. So pray. Might this be a church that prays for one another and encourages one another so that our trust is placed in the right places? Amen? Another question. Anybody ski? Are there slopes in Arkansas? I don't know. Uh, I skied once. So what I mean by that is I went up the slope, I went down the slope, and that was it. I couldn't stop. Like, I didn't know how to, they told me to do the V. I couldn't do the V. I couldn't, so I just, I, I was flying down the hill, yelling for people to get out of my way. I fell, and I stopped because I fell, and that was it. There is a Paralympic skier who's obviously much better than I was. Her name is Daniel Umstead, and the thing about her is that she can't see when she skis down the mountain because she's blind. And in an article on her, she says, it's scary all the time going down the hill and not being able to see. She says, we ski up to 70 miles per hour, so I'm 100% relying on my husband. And she gets down the hill as her husband calls out commands to her left, right, left, right. This is how all, there's more blind skiers, and this is how they all ski. I do think our trust in God is very similar. So if this is a metaphor for following Jesus, you you might say the psalmist in our second point is going to give us some truths to ski the journey of life and following Christ with. And we're to trust them. Are you with me? God, our great help. Look at verses 5 and 6. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, 
This section, begin, it's a beatitude. It begins with a beatitude. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. And we're reminded of a couple things. The first is that our God is the God of Jacob. So this is Jacob, the man, the, the trickster, the one who wrestled with God, who was befriended by God, whose name was changed to Israel, the one whom God changed. The one whom God, uh, is, is, this is a marker of his, his covenant people here. And, and like Jacob, his covenant people are those who ha, he has dramatically changed and befriended. And he is their God. He is our God. What a privilege that we have been changed by God and that in his love, he belongs to us and we to him. He is our hope, and and the wicked who reject him, the Bible says, are without hope in the world because they're without God. But Christian, he he is our help. Not not only are we reminded that he is ours and he's our good and faithful covenant God, but that he is the God who helps sinners and is all-powerful. You see it there. He made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. So his canvas is creation. He is the creator. He is in charge of the turning of the seasons. And what a contrast this is with the fleeting uh, help and, or, and volatile helpers that we, that we often place our trust in. It's not so with the Lord. His power is, is limitless. He keeps faith forever. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. You can trust him. He's the God of Jacob. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He keeps faith forever. In other words, his covenant and creation both testify to how faithful and how powerful he is. Look at the stars. See his power. Look at the church. See his faithfulness. He's he's good and he's powerful and he's, he's compassionate. Look at verse 7. He executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. He sets prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Do you you see what this is? The oppressed, the hungry, prisoners, blind, bowed down, sojourners, widows, fatherless. This is a complete picture of weak people. Needy people, suffering people. And the psalmist's assurance to us is that in God, the one with perfect power, we have the only one who perfectly and faithfully takes up the responsibility of those with no power to help themselves. He takes up the responsibility of of, of one who is going to lift up those who cannot lift up themselves. And in this, he shows us what what power is actually for. This is the creator now caring for the weakest. He gives justice and food and help and relief. And the actual idea here is that he is continually doing so. He's executing. He's giving. He's setting free. He's opening eyes. He's lifting up the downcast. He's loving and he's watching. He's always doing it. Which means that right now he is doing it. For all his chosen ones. He's doing it for you right now. So as you navigate hard seasons and changes 
and maybe relationships leaving or jobs changing. Remember that God is in all of it, executing, giving, setting free, opening eyes, lifting you up, loving you, watching you. He's doing all of it. We see God show us what his power is for, and we, we see him use the very power he created with everything to care for his people. This is how God loves the righteous. He loves the righteous, and this is how he does it. Weak people are helped by their God. The one Paul says, we have the treasure in jars of clay so that we can show that it's God's power helping us. It's, it's not us. This is how it's always been. Right? He's done this in the Old Testament. We see him set prisoners free like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Joseph. And through his prophets Elijah and Elisha, he's fed widows. He's raised the dead. He's watched over all his people who are strangers in foreign lands. He's, he's helped them. And God, and, and God the, the, the amazing thing about the story of redemption is that God has chosen to display his power, power and careful care for weak people, us, most clearly and perfectly by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Because there has, because there has always been a Christ. And because there always will be a crucified Christ and a risen Christ. Because Jesus is eternal, we can always say that God is always helping, that God is always executing justice, that God is always doing good. We have no further to look than the Lord Jesus, the Son of God. This is where God has made his greatest declaration of his power and compassion known. Amen. He executes perfect justice for the oppressed because Jesus is the perfect judge now. And if him, Paul tells us in Acts 17, 31, that God has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And on this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus is the perfect judge. And so, Christian, if you are looking to man to execute justice on your behalf or, beha or the behalf of someone else and they failed you, look to Christ. He will not fail you. His justice does not fail. Charles Spurgeon writes this. He is the friend of the downtrodden, the avenger of the persecuted, the champion of the helpless. Safely may we trust our cause with such a judge if it be a just one. Happy are we to be under such a ruler. He's a good judge. He gives food to the hungry. Jesus gives food to the hungry. He, he fed 5,000 in Matthew 14. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. He feeds the hungry. He's done it. And the, the Scripture says, John 6 says, that he feeds you with himself. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the living bread come down from heaven. He feeds the weak with himself. Are you satisfied with feeding on Jesus? He opens the eyes of the blind. He did this in Matthew 9. 
when he opened the eyes of the blind man. And Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And hasn't he opened your eyes? You were blind and dead in your sin. And hasn't he proven to you that he is the one in Psalm 146 who opens the eyes of the blind? There was, there was a time when you cared nothing for Jesus. And now you do. And that is because he has opened your eyes by his grace through his death and through his resurrection and through your repentance and faith and trust in him. And maybe you are here now and you care nothing for Jesus. You're just kind of checking the box. You might be blind to his work. And I would plead with you to come in faith and humble submission to the one who's all-powerful and able to help weak people, blind people, at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in the light of Jesus. If you are a Christian and if you are in darkness now, come, come to Jesus. Walk as children of the light. Not only does Jesus feed and give sight to the blind, he is the one who raises those who are bowed down. He did this for people who were crippled. Luke says he laid his hands on, on, the, on the woman who, who was, was disabled for 18 years and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. He, he lifts up the bowed down, like literally he did it. And, and doesn't he offer a beautiful invitation to those who are bowed down even in spirit and soul? He lifts you up. Come to me, all who labor and are what? Heavy, laden. That's like weighed down. And I will give you rest. I'll straighten you. I'll strengthen you. I'll help you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He wants to be kind to you. He wants to help you. He wants to lift you up. That's why he died. Not only does he lift up the bowed down, he loves the righteous. Matthew 13, then the righteous will shine, Jesus says, like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus watched over his people. He watches over you now. He loves the righteous, and not because you are righteous, but because he is righteous. And if you are trusting in him, you're covered in his righteousness. And God has set his love on you. He loves the righteous. Jesus watched over strangers. When the Roman centurion came to him in Matthew 8 and said, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. He said to him, I will come and heal him. This is a Roman. This is a stranger. And Jesus watches over him and looks after him. And, and did he not come to earth to, in, to win back strangers and bring them to himself? He took on war and violence and punishment at the cross so that he might win back the sojourner and call him into the camp of the righteous. Not only does he look after strangers and save them, he blesses the fatherless and the widow. We see this in Luke 7. 
They drew near at the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried, and the only son of his mother, and, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the, the bear, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. He helps the fatherless and the widow. Like he did it. And you, if you are in Christ, you were once a child of wrath without a heavenly father. And you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ so that you might receive adoption as sons. And because you are adopted as sons and daughters of God, God has set his spirit in you. And we, we cry by his spirit, Abba, Father, it's in Jesus that you have a daddy, that you have a, an Abba. It's in Christ that he takes people who are estranged from God the Father and gives them a home and a family in the kingdom. The son forsaken wins the fatherless to the perfect father. Not only that, but the psalmist says he will bring the way of the wicked to ruin there in verse 9. And he will. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to give, to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus will judge the wicked. This is the Lord. The psalm calls the sinner, the weak person, to appraise him, to fall upon him in praise and trust and entrust themselves to the one who is able to do good for them in every way that they could imagine, always. Have you made your appraisal? Have you made your assessment, saint? It's, it's here for us in the Bible. Have you looked upon the Lord Jesus and said, yes, he, he is completely worthy of my trust? What do you have to lay down? Who do you have to repent to? Please forgive me. I've been placing trust in you. It's harmed our relationship. Would you pray and that God would help me to not do this? What do you have to do to realign your trust and your praise around the Lord Jesus? To the unbeliever, I would plead with you, if you are here and you've put your hope in the future, in another fallen sinner, they will fail you. Maybe they have. Maybe they walked out. Maybe they abandoned you. Maybe they let you down. If your hopes rise and fall on other sinners, like you're in for a difficult way to go. Set your hope on the Lord Jesus. If you do not know him now, as the one whom you, tr you can trust completely, you will only know him as judge later. Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else. 
for there was no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Think about how you came to know the Lord. Think about who saved you. Think about how you got to where you are, how God saved you in his love and kindness, how you've come to know his grace, how you've come to fight your sin, how you've come to learn to repent, how you've come to learn to love others. Like, you didn't do that. Others didn't do that. Why would you go to you or to someone else for trust and hope and help? Like, why would you do that? That's not how you became a Christian. Robert Hawker says this. If you don't know Robert Hawker, look him up. He's a blessing. It is he that hath opened thine eyes. It is he that hath loosed thee out of the prison. It is he that hath been, he has been your help and now is and ever will be your redeemer, your God and the lifter of your head. Rest then and shout hallelujah, he says. This God is your God forever and ever. He will be your guide unto death. By God's grace, the conclusion of our hearts will be what the psalmist's conclusion is. Is it interesting that he ends the way he began? But he ends the way he began with a little twist here as I close. Look at verse 10. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. In verses 1 and 2, who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. At the end of the psalm, who's he talking to? He's talking to Zion. Oh, God, this is all God's people. And so while he's reasoned with his soul to praise the Lord, he's made his assessment. He, he ends the psalm by calling all of Zion, all Zion to praise God together. And this is one of the ways that we entrust ourselves to the Lord and not to men, by giving him praise together. We sing congregationally. One of the reasons that churches sing congregationally is not just because, like, that's what churches do. Like, we sing songs. We sing songs together so that we can remind our souls and one another who is worthy of our trust. That's why you sing. So don't just, like, okay, I want to watch the game. Like, let's get through this song. You're missing an opportunity. We're called to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What? To one another. And I think this is one of the reasons the psalm ends this way, so that we would know, oh, it's not just me and Jesus. It's not just me and my soul. Certainly it is. But I'm fit together with the people. And if I think, that I can come to know and trust the Lord and, 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 and stand on him in faith by myself, I am also in for a very rough way to go. It happens in the church. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. And so when you sing, just consider what it's meant to do. It actually does something, saints. It's one of the ways that we help one another be entrusted to the Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the psalmist has given us a clear picture of the Lord Jesus. We pray that we would entrust ourselves to him in faith in all things. 
and that we would do this together as your people. We ask that you would do this for your glory in our lives so that you might get glory in the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church.